0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: Welcome, welcome. It is Downtown, the podcast. What the man says is true. Welcome into episode number, let's see, uh, 247. Wow. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here with you podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we've got, uh, I, I dare say, a couple of legends on the program for you this week. A uh, little bit later on, a music legend who was part of the British invasion back in the 60s, traveled in the Beatles circle, worked for Apple Records, discovered James Taylor, produced JT, Linda Ronstadt, and others through the years. And he is still going strong, talking about Peter Asher who will join us in the second half of the program this week. But up first, uh, one of the funniest and most talented people around, she uh, came to prominence with the Canadian sketch comedy series SCTV, creating some indelible characters there, and has gone on to a very successful career, television, film, and on Broadway. She is a five-time Tony nominee, a two-time Tony Award winner. She's also scored herself... A couple of Emmy Awards as well, and keeping quite busy these days in two series, uh, Evil, which is now on Paramount+, and in Season 2, and currently shooting Season 3 of Only Murders in the Building for Hulu with uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and a a cast of incredible all-stars joining up for Season 3 as well. We are so happy to be joined by Maine native Andrea Martin. Hello, Andrea.
0: Oh, the, the best title is Maine Native. That's the best claim to fame.
1: I thought the best title was Miss Deering High, 1965.
0: That was good, too. <laughs> that was with Dickie Wormel, who was my boyfriend, and he was also um, the mayor. The mayor and Miss Deering.
1: Yeah. Wow, good deal there. All right, tell me <laughs> what this says about me, Andrea, that uh, I'll confess it right here on the radio, before God and everybody— I have been in love with you since the first time I saw Edith Prickley. What does that mean?
0: <laughs> well, you'll, you'll like a feisty woman, Rich. That's what it means. You're not afraid of a powerful gal.
1: I guess not. Well, you are a busy woman. You've got a couple of series that you're juggling these days, and I want to talk about those first. Uh, we got to meet Joy in Season 2 of uh, Only Murders in the Building. She's back for Season 3 It's uh, like an all-star team of of comedic acting talent there.
0: My God, it really is. Uh, I mean, one person after another, really. It's um, Paul Rudd and Omero. Streep. I wouldn't call her in the comedy vein, but certainly in every other vein and comedy.
1: She's got some skills.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I wouldn't think that she's not known as a comedian, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, Tina Fey there. On it this year uh I mean you know the list is endless really they just have they have a you know a great access to New York actors because it shoots here in new york so and everybody wants to do it so they they really have the uh their pick
1: is it as much fun shooting as it appears to be when we watch
0: it really truly is a lot of fun now, you know Marty and Steve are good friends of mine Martin short and Steve Martin, so that helps right that mm. i they're friends feels like family, um, but it, it's and so they set the tone and the tone and they're best of friends. So the tone is um, just kind of um, silly, hardworking, but joyful and improvisational and um, uh, sar- sarcastic and um, you know everything that you know Marty and Stephen as.
1: Yeah, bit of a cliffhanger at the end of season two. Can you tell us everything that happens in, in season three?
0: I, I don't actually know everything that happens. <laughs> We're only on, um, three, let me see, I just finished 304 and I'm about to 305. I really don't know. They don't tell anybody really what, you know, who the murderer is or any of that. I just <laughs> get my script. I learn it and I show up.
1: Well, you're also involved in a, a wonderful series that's a shooting, what's shooting season four now of Evil? yes yeah wow and and what a part that is Uh, sister andrea such a great (laughs) character and i i was thinking about this in a world that's uh well it's not often black and white at all it what's it like to play a character who has such absolute unbreakable faith um well what's
0: it like it's uh i don't know i i have to say that um it's it's kind of reassuring, really. And uh, you know, I've done a lot of research um, on nuns and a specific nun called Sister Simone Campbell, who's an activist. Mm. And you know, she did this nuns on the bus, where they traveled around the country, um, and uh, you know, bringing light to um, what, the uh, inconsistencies in government with. Um, people that don't have anything, people that do and she's really outspoken um and so she that's kind of the backbone of the character that I'm playing. So I always like to base it on somebody real.
1: Well, and some really intense and very poignant scenes, particularly in season 3.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Yes, I they write beautiful dialogue for her. And they and this year I just I'm so tired because of the last 4 days I've been killing demons. So, um <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's a lovely combination of, um, kind of wit and comedy and physicality. And as you say, poignance and faith and unshakable faith and, um, dedication. So it's a really great combination. I don't know another character on television like that, really.
1: Uh, One of our listeners, and we posted that you were on the show said she is one badass nun. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's what I hear. Well, you know, (laughs) they're writing it. I just show up.
1: Now, can you see any demons now uh, here on our Zoom session?
0: Well, if I could see a demon, I'd be the only one being able to see it. I know. know? So I could lie to you and say there are five demons around your head right now, and you wouldn't know if I was telling you the truth.
1: I I call that just (laughs) another day around here. Uh, (laughs) Boy, speaking of uh, Broadway talent, it's, it's a who's who of Broadway actors who have appeared on Evil 2 in the last few seasons.
0: That's for sure. Well, you know, both of those shows were shot in New York. And um, they're very um, understanding of Broadway schedules. So I remember a few years ago, I was um, shooting Good Fight, which is another Michelle Mm. King show. And I was doing a show at night, and I can't remember which one it was. Maybe it was Noises Off. But you know, they would wrap me, like finish me off, off by 5 o'clock so I could travel and then get to the theater. Um, so they're, so actors love to do it. You can make a little bit more money in television than you can in theater. And everybody wants to be involved with the Kings because they're, um, mm. they're so prolific and uh, respectful to actors. So yeah, it's a win-win.
1: And a great friend of our show uh, has a recurring role now too, Tim Matheson.
0: Oh, uh, wait—is Tim from Maine?
1: He's not from Maine, but he's been on our show several times. He's become uh, one of our favorite guests to talk with.
0: Wait, so cool! I love him. But wait—he's—is he on Evil? Yeah. Oh my God! See, I don't—I don't watch the show. I don't watch that show. <laughs> I don't watch um, Only Murders. You know, the only thing I watch are is the news and Shark Tank. And now I'll be listening to you.
1: Well, thank you. That's good. I like being in that company right there. So let's go back to the early days. You you grew up, as, as most people know, you grew up in Portland. Um, what was that experience like? And and what was it? At what age did you decide that a life of an actor was for you?
0: Um, I, I think it was around um, eight or nine. And I got involved with the Portland Children's Theater, which was um, up on... Always get Munjoy Hill and the other hill. Gosh, the one to the if you're going up, the one to the right, not to the left. The one What's the one now that's really fashionable? Everybody wants to live there. Um, do you know?
1: I don't because they only let me go to Munjoy Hill.
0: <laughs> All right, well, it's up where Maine Medical Center is. Okay. I, so, is that? I don't know which. Okay, and um, I don't think I ever knew. I always always got them confused. Um, so I I got involved with children's theater and then I got involved with summer stock there at the Kenny Bunkport playhouse and, um, in Harrison Maine, I worked. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just knew from the very beginning that that's something that I wanted to do. I didn't know if it was going to be parlayed into a career, but I certainly knew it brought me a lot of, um, comfort and kept me out of trouble when I was a young girl.
1: (laughs) And what led you to Canada?
0: Um, I was touring the country in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, which I was cast in after I graduated from college. And the cast was made up mostly of Canadians. And I played Lucy and I fell in love with a boy playing Linus and he was Canadian. So I'd go up, I'd cash my unemployment checks in New York after the show ended and I'd go up to Toronto all the time to visit him. And I loved it there. I, I, I really felt at home when I landed, the first time I landed in Toronto. So I, I, lived there for many years, got married there, had kids there. And then when my career really, I wouldn't say started taking off because I've been working consistently, but when maybe larger venue, when Johnny Carson called, uh, and and I did a few other projects in LA, I thought, okay, maybe it's time now to move to LA. So that's kind of been the trajectory. But my heart has always been on Broadway and New York and being able to have have access. I'm coming up to Portland um, next week, actually, because I have a week off and I want to visit my family up there.
1: I want to talk a little bit about some stage work you did in Canada. Dave Thomas was on with us a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about that amazing cast in the production of Godspell you were all in.
0: Right. Yes. And you know everybody in there, Um, Gilda Radner, Martin Short, Dave Thomas, Eugene Levy, myself paul shaper was our musical director victor garber was jesus we've all remained really close friends um and that was 1971
1: and so many of you went on to sctv which for my money is as good as sketch comedy gets and when we had dave on i went back and and watched some old sketches i watched a number of yours and, and they hold up so well those characters were just brilliant
0: thank you so much yeah so, some of them really do hold up. I agree with you. They're kind of timeless. Cuz you know we didn't do real political satire, right? So they it is it the comedy really is kind of, of timeless.
1: And did I see that uh, Jimmy Kimmel is putting together an SCTV reunion?
0: Yeah, you know, we were going to do it with Martin Scorsese. He was he's a, was a huge fan of SCTV. Um but he was so busy shooting so many films um Jimmy Jimmy had um, been the host when we did a reunion in Toronto, and Jimmy was the host when Mark, Marty Marty Scorsese was shooting it, filming it to put into this um, documentary on SCTV. But he just couldn't. They just he just was too busy, and our schedules were busy. So Jimmy said, "Why don't you do it?" So he's going to executive produce it. Yes, this documentary.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, We're talking with Andrea Martin here on downtown. Uh, In my day job, I teach high school and I'm a high school theater director. And uh, you won a Tony Award as Alice Miller in one of my favorite plays. I love directing it. My favorite year.
0: Oh, yes. well I love that you're a theater direct, a theater teacher. Where in in Bangor?
1: Uh, Right across the river in Brewer.
0: In, in, in a private school or a public nope, school? No,
1: public school, Brewer High School.
0: Oh, my God. All I want to do is talk to you about the, I guess I, <laughs> I shouldn't, but the nonsense that's happening Oof. in Florida and all the books being taken away. It's, it's really um, heartbreaking, actually, when I think what these kids are going to miss. And so God bless you for bringing anything that you can to, to kids, expose them to everything. And my favorite year... The score was by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, and I love them so much. I was involved with Susicle that they did, and Ragtime. I wasn't involved with Ragtime, but I love them from that. So my favorite year was the first show I did on Broadway. I was 45, and um, that was pretty great. I never even knew what a Tony Award was, so to win a Tony <laughs> was crazy.
1: You'll appreciate this when We had auditions for that show. I had a freshman in high school, 14 years old, and you never know what's going to happen with kids that age. And I said, so this, uh, this show is loosely based on uh, a show that was on back in the 50s uh, starring a, a man named Sid Caesar and this freshman boy who instantly became my favorite said, oh, my God, you mean your show of shows, Imogene Coca, Carl Reiner. And I said, we're going to get along well, young man.
0: What the heck? Wait, how old is he now?
1: I, uh, he's about 29 or 30 now.
0: Did he go into the theater?
1: He did. He went to NYU to the the Tisch School for the Arts and his... Uh, Doing some work here and there and everywhere, but uh, he had that. He had the right mentality to be successful because he knew I love things.
0: It. of course. Because unlike most kids who just are getting stardom from TikTok or Instagram or whatever, he really understood history. That will serve mm. him better than people that just get instant overnight success. They don't really have any foundation. It's hard, I think, for them to have a long interesting career, an enduring career without any kind of sense of history of where they came from. Absolutely.
1: Uh, You also uh, appeared in one another, Tony, in another of my favorites, uh, Pippin, and a wonderful production. Um, We're close enough to Boston that uh, uh, my wife and I love to get down to ART and see the productions there. And uh, Diane Paulus, just a a, a genius. And what a wonderful staging of Pippin, unless perhaps you're afraid of heights, because that (laughs) had to be tough.
0: Um, I am afraid of heights, frankly, but I wanted to do something uh, very uh, traditional in the circus, not do these little gimmicky things that people, I I don't, I mean, that's terrible to say, but there are some um, easier, uh, more special effect things that I didn't want to do. I wanted to be, I wanted to learn something in in the old-fashioned, you know, Barnum and Bailey circus. And so Gypsy Snyder, who was our, Um, circus choreographer who's a brilliant uh, brilliant woman in so many aspects runs a dance theater company up in Montreal anyway I said I want to do something traditional she said what about a stationary trapeze and so I went to circus school and I tried not to think about being afraid of heights Um, and I never thought about I never thought I was never frightened when we were doing the show every night but when we rehearsed when I wasn't the character I was petrified so It was great to be in costume, just be on stage.
1: I have to ask you as well about uh, playing Frau Blücher in Young Frankenstein with another mainer, Christopher Fitzgerald.
0: One of my closest friends. I worship him. He just got cast in the Encores production of Dear World. Oh, wow. He's the greatest guy. I I love him. We're really, really good friends. And uh, we met and i had no idea he was from maine he didn't have any idea i was from maine and we became very close we were up in williamstown theater festival that's where we met and just immediately got along and then one day he mentioned something about waynefleet i said what you mean (laughs) waynefleet the private school in portland he said that's where i went what the hell you know i'm from portland maine i went to Deering high school i love it he's just the greatest kid yeah and i love linda lavin she's from maine yes What an extraordinary actress she is with great longevity. Yeah, you produce good people up there.
1: You're darn right. Well, uh, you're certainly one of them. We're proud to claim you as a Mainer Mm -hmm. here. Uh, I've loved your work for many, many years and and so excited to see you uh, continuing to do great work on shows like Evil and Only Murders in the Building. uh, So much I wanted to talk about, but I know you're on a a tight schedule. I hope we can do it again sometime, Andrea. This has been wonderful.
0: Well, it's it's been the highlight of my day. Thank you. I really (laughs) really appreciate love to everybody is it freezing up there is it okay
1: it's 50 today it's crazy perfect yeah
0: (laughs) go out for a walk i love it all right i'll see you in winter harbor this summer
1: that's andrea martin with us here on downtown the podcast we'll take a break for a word from cross insurance and come back with peter asher after this
0: since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
1: John brilliant cover of the Everly Brothers' When Will I Be Loved, number one country, number two on the pop charts, Grammy nominee and all of it produced by the great Peter Asher, who has had a remarkable career in music. All been chronicled by author David Jackson. His book, Peter Asher, A Life in Music. But we thought, what's best to talk to the source? And so we welcomed Peter back to the program to talk about, uh, well, among other things, his one-man show that will come to New England In March, called A Musical Memoir of the 60s and Beyond. Here's Peter Asher on Downtown. Thank you for making some time for us today, Peter.
2: No problem. Happy to do so.
1: Well, I want to start and ask how you're feeling. You, You had a bit of a struggle there in the fall.
2: Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Yes, that's all sorted out. They drilled a couple of holes in my head and let the evil spirits out, and everything <laughs> everything was back to normal. I'm fine, thank you.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that, and uh, well, thank goodness, uh, your wife Wendy insisted that you go get things checked out, right? Yes. Well, you've been busy uh, ever since uh, you recovered from your surgery. Uh, you did a number of shows uh, with your old friend Jeremy Clyde. What was it like getting back together with him?
2: I always enjoy singing. I haven't actually done any Jeremy shows since uh, since my brain surgery. But, um, yes, it's always a pleasure uh, singing with Jeremy. You know, we have a lot of fun out on the road in conversation and musically and, and stuff. So, yes, I'm always happy to see him as an old friend and always great to sing with him.
1: And uh, you'll be up our way in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on uh, March 12th. Jimmy's Jazz and Blues Club in Portsmouth uh, doing your musical memoir of the 60s. And beyond, uh, what, what will people see if they get a chance to see you in Portsmouth?
2: Uh, it's it's me singing some old songs, telling stories, showing bits of video, showing some photos that you know I've rustled up from one source or another, or found in the old archives, and and uh, uh, so it's a couple of hours of, of of reminiscence and music and and stories, and and uh, you know people seem to enjoy it. I
1: enjoy it. Well, that's wonderful, and uh, you've been keeping very busy as always. Uh, an album uh, scheduled to come out, I, I believe, fairly soon. That you yeah, produced in, a, with in April, yeah. Susanna Hoffs, right?
2: Yes, correct. I was always a a, a big fan of the Bangles, and and um, loved Susanna's voice. So when I got a chance to work with her, we met and stuff, and and she's amazing. Yeah, she's a remarkable woman and a great singer and a great writer too.
1: She is indeed. And and somewhere along the way, it looks to me like she discovered the fountain of youth, too.
2: Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) We should all look that good. It's true.
1: We had uh, David Jackson with us last week talking about his uh, terrific book about you, Peter Asher, A Life in Music. And uh, you you did an event with David, too, to fill in some of the stories uh, a little bit.
2: Uh, yes, I mean, I did a, a bookshop thing with with David, uh, which you know, which is fun. I mean, he he came to me many years ago, you know, and said he'd never written a book before, and said I want to write a book about you, and I kind of went really, and uh, um, you know, I didn't, I, I honestly didn't think he'd find a publisher for it, but uh, he did. I mean, he worked on it for I don't know, fifteen years or something, isn't it? It's something like that, and and uh, it was amazing, you know. So it's not. Official in the sense that he wrote it, not me, completely. But did he ask me some questions and, and get, try to get some facts straight? Yes, he did, and I was happy to help.
1: And you didn't think people would have an interest in reading your story? Not to that, not
2: to any particular extent, not to book extent. No, I mean, yes, I've, I've done, you know, I've had, I've had an interesting life so far, but not not one that I would consider. I would, I would personally have considered biography worthy, but, but. Uh, he he'd set out to do it. So he did it.
1: We're talking with Peter Asher here on downtown. We've talked a lot with you in the past w- about music, but I don't know that we've ever discussed your time uh, as a child actor. Was there, a, was there a, a star? I know you worked with Boris Karloff when you were pretty young. Was there a yes. star that uh, was especially memorable for you to work with?
2: Claudette Colbert, you know, oh, wow. because to us, to us, uh, a star, you know, in England meant an American star. They were the real movie stars. We had we had our own, but they were sort of the B team. Um, everyone knew that genuine movie stars came from Hollywood, and and um, and so when I was cast in the, the first film I did, my father was played by Jack Hawkins. You might know who he is oh yes yeah british actor plays a lot of distinguished military men like lawrence of arabia he's mm-hmm. in and uh, all that kind sort of stuff but and so that was cool i'd seen him in movies and that was impressive i i was eight at the time but i also got to kiss claudette Colbert with great filial enthusiasm uh <laughs> uh uh when i was eight and and she was Charming and gorgeous and, and everything a proper American movie star should be. So that's a memorable one.
1: And my, my guess is that Kiss made her forget all about Gable.
2: Oh, I should think so, yes. I should think <laughs> so, without <laughs> doubt. Good point.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, reading exactly. David's book, uh, it, it encouraged me to go back and, and revisit uh, some great music through the years. And uh, I thought of uh, the opener of your wonderful book, The Beatles, A to Z, uh, the conversation that started that life in music for you when Paul wrote the words, please lock me away. And John Lennon's response was yes. Okay. End of song.
2: Right. (laughs) Yes, that is true. I mean, I didn't witness that conversation, but Paul told me that, that, that John was not keen on the song. It's one of the reasons he'd never finished it and that the Beatles never recorded it. You know, that, that, uh, one of the things John wasn't crazy about was that he thought the opening lyric was silly
1: well, and you still needed to uh, to get Paul and, and work yourselves on a bridge for the song before it could become a big hit.
2: Yeah, we didn't. I mean, I wish that we'd written it, but no, Paul wrote it. But, but yes, when the song, he'd stopped, he'd given up on the song, all he had was the verse and the second verse of lyrics. But um, so in preparation for our session, I did have to nag him ever so slightly to come up <laughs> with a bridge in time for the recording date, which he did.
1: Boy, going back and listening to those records, though, uh, I go to pieces. Woman, they are—they're just great records that that still stand out today. And uh, and and part of that is the wonderful production. They sound so crisp and so clean.
2: That's very kind of you. I mean, I I wasn't officially the producer, but yes, I I was very much involved in the making of those records. I knew the record production was something I wanted to do the very first time I was ever in the studio. I loved the idea of it. In fact, you could hire brilliant musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do. I thought, what kind of a great job is that? You know, I want to do that. (laughs) So I I deliberately set out to, 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 to become a record producer
1: but i remember you telling us that uh, the key to being a great producer is to work with great artists
2: it's true it's true it's very simple <laughs> you know uh it, it's true both in management and production the key ingredient is having a, an artist in whom one can believe wholeheartedly and whom one is convinced um that the rest of the pub, the rest of the great listening public will agree and in the case of uh, the beatles or James Taylor or Linda Ronstadt or many of the people I've worked with, the, the, luckily the public did agree.
1: Uh, James is, so uh, I've been very lucky. James is coming here uh, to perform a show in, in June, and uh, obviously you saw his talents, but but not like anybody was peering deep into a crystal ball in the light, late 1960s. Could you have imagined that he would become really this fabric of our culture, part of what I think of as the, the modern great American songbook?
2: Did I foresee that? No. Does it surprise me? No. So it's it's sort of in between. I mean, at the time, um, uh, I suppose when we started, James and I started working together, our ambition would be to have a successful album and to sell out the folk clubs. You know, if we could play the Bitter End in New York, the um, Bottom Line, and in the in Washington, the Main Point, in Philadelphia, the Troubadour in L.A., and so on, that would be the peak of success <laughs> at that point in time. So I uh, know it did. I foresee the cover of time or being described as the great American treasure and all this stuff. or Kennedy center awards. No, I did not foresee that, but do I think James deserves it all? Absolutely. Yes.
1: I loved uh, revisiting that, that run of remarkable albums you did with Linda Ronstadt. I, it's a, a magical combination. I think of a great songs, an amazing singer, Perfect production, uh, a tremendous band. But uh, listening to that music and watching some of the videos, boy, it reminded me, too, what an unsung hero Andrew Gold was in that process. Oh, God, yes.
2: No, Andrew was remarkable. I mean, I'm I'm always reluctant to use the word genius. I second guess myself because it's too easy. But he was an extraordinary exceptional unique talent and a brilliant musician he could play play pretty much any instrument he picked up and figure it out um had very little formal musical training but was a brilliant inventive productive you know record producer songwriter and musician and and bringing his contribution to things like you're no good uh, uh unequaled.
1: Mm. And bringing in a, a multi-talented musician like Dan Dugamore and what he added.
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, he's, multi, he's multi-talented, hes multi but he's, I mean, his, his forte is definitely the, the pedal steel guitar. Mm. He's, he's hes not like Andrew in that. I mean, Andrew could play, probably play a pedal steel if you left him alone mm. with it for a day or two. But but Dan, I regard as the as the master. He remains my favorite Um he played on uh, a few things. He played on the, the Susanna Hoffs album I just did, and he's he's um, quite extraordinary. He, he he makes the pedal steel do things and elicit emotional responses that nobody else can do, in my view.
1: Was that him on pedal steel at the end of Tracks of My Tears? Yes. Oh, wow! And it's just beautiful. That's,
2: absolutely was. And that's not a song you'd expect a right. pedal steel guitar on. <laughs>
1: right, but right. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, that's wonderful. We are talking with Peter Asher here on downtown. He'll be at Jimmy's Jazz and Blues Club, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on March 12th. Uh, your friend Robin Williams, uh, he's compared to people like, uh, I know a guy who was an idol of his, Jonathan Winters, uh, Peter Sellers. But but I have to ask you, as someone who knew him so very well, have, have we ever seen a performer that had the skill set that Robin Williams had?
2: Uh, no. I mean, the, the the comparable people would be the ones you mentioned, or Peter Sellers comes to mind. You know, there have there, there been a few comic geniuses, but none with the same facility and ability and creativity as Robin, no.
1: And that ability as well to play dramatic roles and, and find a way to touch people, not just with comedy, but by by dropping into the life of people and becoming, uh, as time went on, a very, very talented actor.
2: No, indeed. Yes, true.
1: We had uh, we had Roel Malo on our show a couple of years ago, and I wasn't aware at the time that you had produced uh, his Your Only Lonely album. I-, I love that album, especially love his version of To Love Somebody.
2: Oh, great. Good. Yes. No, he- he's one of the best singers in the world. He's just extraordinary. He can take, you know, he can take a mediocre song and make you fall in love with it. And if it's a good song, God help you. <laughs> He's such a convincing, brilliant, remarkable singer. There's no one else quite like him.
1: And, and until I read about it in the book, I had somehow missed the great version that uh, Wilson Phillips did of Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way.
2: Oh, good. Uh, thank you. Yeah, was, working with them was great
1: yeah you uh, mentioned in, in David's book uh, the admiration you have for a guy you've worked with a number of times Neil Diamond it's good to see him finally get his due a Broadway show based on his life and, and people realizing that he should be in that conversation about the, the great songwriters of the last 60 years
2: It's true it's absolutely true I think because of the you know the the other Neil the the you know this Neil you know a guy um and the fact that he's so immensely popular, in a way, almost stopped people from realizing that he should be on the great songwriters of American uh, song history uh, list, which he undoubtedly should. You know, so many solitary man and so many Neil songs that are just brilliant. You know, and so that he is, he is a songwriter. So he goes on the same list as as Bob Dylan and and you know other uh, great songwriters of history, including of course poor dear but Bacharach.
1: Uh, you lost a dear friend recently, uh, David Crosby, and you posted yeah. a, a wonderful uh, memory of him uh, on social media. He was he was such a talented guy, and obviously had a lot of respect for you. In, in David's book, he talks about you as being one of the great harmony vocalists of all time.
2: I love that. That was that was one of the compliments that I that resonated the most with me. If David Crosby thinks that you're a good harmony singer, that means a lot. I was I was thrilled
1: by that. He was, uh, safe to say, a complicated man.
2: He was, and he turned so many people against him. I was lucky that we were still friends. I don't know how we managed to not offend each other. But, um, yeah, he, he it mystified him as well. He, you know, in his reflective moments, he'd be kind of going, I wonder why I made everybody hate me. <laughs> you know, because so quite a number of people did. And then quite a number of people, of course, didn't. And they're now looking back upon him very fondly. As is cr- the correct view,
1: and he had talked about getting off the road, but then not long before he passed, he had discussed the the possibility of performing again, and and so many others. Uh, Paul McCartney is still out there putting on three hour yeah, we, shows for people uh, throughout the year. What is it about your generation of of artists uh, that that keep them going and and keep them wanting to uh, wanting to continue to perfect their craft?
2: I don't know. Uh, Obviously, you know, when Gordon died, uh, I had a choice. You know, would I never sing those songs live again, um, or any songs, or you know, or what? And that's when I thought of this idea of putting a show together, you know, um, including the songs, but also including some stories and reflections, and and I enjoyed doing it. You know, I'm. I've got a few shows coming up. I've got a cruise coming up that I host, the '60s cruise, and they're they're fun to do. And and uh, I have no intention of you know moving to Florida and taking up golf or anything. So it <laughs> it, it uh, you know what else should I do? I enjoy it, and people who come seem to like it. You know they don't ask for their money back, and uh, and uh, so I'm, I'll keep doing it until I can't.
1: I was reading a piece recently. You may have seen this as well. It was talking about the uh, the relative disappearance of key changes in contemporary music, and and cited as, as reasons for that, uh, the growth of of hip hop music, music that builds based on rhythm, but also digital production techniques. Do you do you think there's some truth to that? And uh, and is it something that you miss in music?
2: I don't miss it. I mean, I like a nice modulation when it turns up, but. Um, I don't think digital production's got anything to do with it. I think it's the nature of the the song and the record, you know, that evidently doesn't call out for a, a key change. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much that's changed about record making. Some people think good bridges are disappearing and because many songs have no bridges mm-hmm. now. The, and sometimes the verse and the chorus are pretty much the same, but with some subtle differences. And, and you know, th- those can make great records too. So specifically, do I miss... Key changes? Not really. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It's a so song. Songwriting and song structure has always changed throughout history, and and continues to do so. And you, you know, people still are making great records. By which I mean records that really you feel great to listen to and that uh worm they went into your head and you can't forget them which is a key aspect of a successful pop song and and that uh, you you know the minute you get to the the minute the needle gets to the middle groove you want to put it back to the beginning of the 45 and hear it again you know as it were
1: old uh, radio warhorses uh like me we uh, we look back fondly on the days of editing tape with a razor blade and going through all that. Is there anything you miss about uh, the old ways of producing or uh, has the digital age just opened up new possibilities for you?
2: The latter. Uh, I don't miss it at all. Um, you know, some people do. I get people who say to me, oh, you're so lucky you made all those records in the age of tape. And, you know, I go, well, does anyone actually remember what it was like dealing with tone reels and azimuth and, and and the fact that if you wanted to go and overdub somebody in a different place, you had to physically go there, you had to carry these incredibly heavy tapes, walk them around the X-ray machines. <laughs> I mean, in return for what, you know? Uh, I, now, some people like recording a tape because of its limitations, and I can get that. It's a bit like that way that, of making movies where they impose very strict rule of what... I forget what it's called now, but there's a there's a filmmaking style... That's started in Denmark or Sweden or somewhere, but um, where, by the nature of saying we will only use real film or we will only use this kind of camera, you 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 keep keep yourself from going crazy. I can understand that. You know, the fact that having an infinite number of tracks, as we do now, isn't necessarily a good thing. That I mean, you might want to go, okay, we're going to make this on eight track as a as an exercise in restraint. You know, that has something to be said for it. But actually, technologically. Uh, digital technology enables us to do things that we always wanted to do. We would have done them, but we couldn't, you know. I had occasion to put up the original tapes of some old record. I forget what they were. I was doing a mix of it for a movie. But you run into this spot that I remembered from before, you know, where the kick drum and the bass aren't exactly together, but it was the great take. And we used it because it was the great take with the great vocal on it. And and so i just you know it was unfixable at the time back in the old days but now of course once we transferred it into pro tools it was a matter of two seconds (laughs) to 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 get rid of that little flam that always annoyed me and i kind of went it's better it's better when it's better you know what can you what can you (laughs) say and so we can fix things that we didn't used to be able to fix or one note that's slightly out of tune and you just fix it and it's in my view sounds better and i know some people will be horrified at the idea of that if you're dealing with a classic record but we would have done it at the time if we could
1: what do you think of, of tools and i guess we'll call it a tool like autotune
2: it's a tool exactly and all tools you know it can be used for good or for bad um uh, auto tune itself and the idea of doing it automatically I'm not terribly keen on. I don't particularly like the way it sounds, but but the ability to adjust a a note or a harmony note or something till it's exactly right is irresistible.
1: Do you still learn new things when you're in the studio?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, you know, you, you the more you work with new people, you find different ways to work with them and different ideas that they have. And of course, there's the interesting new technology that, that suddenly shows up. I mean, now all this stuff Peter Jackson pioneered that they mm. used on the Beatles, where you can demix things, you know, where you actually have several things on the same track or even recorded on the same microphone at the same time that you can now separate into separate musical elements, which is a dream come true in many respects um, and seems logically impossible. You know, that you and I could sing together on the same microphone and and be tuned or adjusted separately, uh, which is with Melodyne, is the case, which Melodyne is a sort of other version of Auto Tune, which is I like better. And um, it's amazing, you know, and it like, but of course it can be misused. And sometimes the misuse itself becomes cool, you know, when people. Mm with T-Pain's use of autotune, you know, where it's like way over the top and way obvious. That becomes cool in itself. It's right. an instrument in itself and, and so much the better.
1: You mentioned Peter Jackson and uh, I wonder what your impressions were. If for years, the, uh, the narrative about the Let It Be sessions was that it was chronicling the end uh, of a band's time together, but then watching watching his documentary from uh, a couple of years ago there, it gave you a new view, and it, it seemed that this was more you know, a group of guys who had been through everything together and certainly had their disagreements and, and understood that time was probably drawing to a close, but, but still had that love and affection for each other. W- which camp do you come down in?
2: Oh, I think the new version is more accurate, um, I would guess. It, it, you know, wasn't quite as doomy and gloomy as the original version. But also there's so much more to it. You know, it's much longer and more, more in-depth, so you learn more. But, yes, bands are complicated. Bands all hate each other and they all love each other to some degree. And and how that pans out um, when it's a band that's been together for a long time. If you look at the Rolling Stones or something, you know, they've had periods of barely speaking and periods of loving each other. And, and uh, you know, we all know that as you get older, you start thinking that maybe the hating each other phase is not really a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and they, some bands succeed in growing out of it.
1: Well, and you and Gordon were certainly two very different personalities, but that that magical mix that came together in the music, but it seemed like uh, you also had a respect for each other and and We did. I mean, we
2: had big rows, but not serious. Right? Not, you know, duos. When, as you know, duos, when they have rows, they can be real really mind-boggling if you look at you know the uh the gallagher's you know right. uh, uh brothers or the everly brothers or you know uh the, the kinks brothers you know um those those brotherly duos uh would get vicious and physically you know they practically tried to kill each other and in each case on the Everly's case they didn't speak to each other for a couple of years gordon and i never went through any of that but we, we had some rows and we had periods of being fed up with each other yes but but in general and as as uh, as identified by the fact that we never broke up right <laughs> we never we never said this is it you know people go well after Peter and Gordon broke up and I tend to interrupt them and say actually we didn't we just gradually stopped working together um Gordon wanted to make some records on his own I wanted to be a producer and we drifted into other worlds and I was very surprised when we got back together 37 years later to do some shows. And then of course, I was very glad we did because shortly after that, you know, Gordon died. And, and, uh, so I I'd, I'd rather look back on the last few shows we did than look back on not speaking to him, mm. which would be pointless.
1: Absolutely. Well, Peter, it's a delight to talk with you as always. Appreciate you making time for us today. And I, Hopefully I can get down to New Hampshire and see that show. March 12th, a musical memoir of the 60s and beyond at Jimmy's Jazz and Blues Club in Portsmouth. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. As yeah, well. I was going
2: to say, please do come to the gig. It would be great to see you there.
1: Peter, thank you so much. My pleasure. Always a treat to talk with the great Peter Asher. Uh, check out his website for in- information on how to see him. He will be in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on March 12th with a musical memoir of the 60s and beyond. And check out David Jack's biography of peter is great as well peter asher a life in music our thanks to peter and thanks to the wonderful andrea martin and to you for checking us out this week downtown the podcast brought to you by cross insurance for carrie haskell i'm rich kimball we'll see you next time here on downtown